Welcome back to New Books and Sociology, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Sarah Patterson, and today I'm speaking with Sandra Fahi about her new book, Dying for Rights, Putting North Korea's Human Rights Abuses on the Record. Welcome to the show, Sandra. Hi, Sarah. Thanks for having me. Start us off by telling us a little bit about you. Okay. Well, um, first of all, I'm very grateful to be on the Sociology Books podcast since I'm an anthropologist by training. (laughs) A little bit of an interloper here and honored to be here. There's so much overlap between our fields. So, you know, that's nice. Well, I suppose I'll tell you that currently I'm at Harvard Law School's Human Rights Program and I'm writing my new book here. I'm ordinarily based at Sophia University in Tokyo, Japan, and I'm there as an associate professor of anthropology, where I teach courses on human rights, anthropology, um, usually visual and uh, uh, linguistic uh, research methods courses, and uh, I teach Korean studies as well. Yeah, so I don't know. That's uh, probably a good basic thing to tell you about me. So how did this book come about for you? In 2015, my first book was published. So I had been in discussion with Columbia University Press and the series editors before that. You know, I had submitted drafts of my first book and then had that contracted. And but some readers, well, if they haven't read the book, they wouldn't know. But the univer- uh, sorry, the um, United Nations uh, was putting together a commission of inquiry to investigate you know, whether allegations of crimes against humanity were in fact the case with North Korea. And this started around 2013. And then in 2014, that United Nations report was published. And so the editors at Columbia thought it would be a really good idea to have a a single book that contextualized the entire human rights situation in North Korea. So they wrote to me and asked me if I would be interested in doing that. And I thought carefully about it for a lot of reasons, which I could elaborate on, but I, I won't necessarily go into. I was in the middle of writing another book at the time when they they wrote to me. So this was in 2015. They asked me, would I be interested in writing the book? And I thought about it. And then I, I decided to put together a proposal for the book, sent it to them. They put it under contract. And um, yeah, here it is, 2019. Yeah, it's out. So yeah, that's that's basically the birth of the book, as it were. So you say in your book that testimony is a dialect. So I was hoping you could start us off by describing what you mean by that and your general methodology for the book. Well, I'll just go back a little bit and say that, you know, testimony, these are some things that really interest me, like the oral the oral history, the oral account. This is always something that's really fascinated me, particularly when it comes to issues of collective social suffering and human rights in general. The idea of the testimony, testifying about a particular experience you've had. So the first book was looking at uh, oral histories that I collected from North Koreans who survived the famine. So as a methodology, it was my basic starting point, if you will, um, to gather primary data. I say that testimony is a dialect or a dialectic because I want to emphasize that it's a conversation, like one speaks in order to be heard. I mean, we're speaking all the time in terms of self-talk and things like that, (laughs) sometimes to torturous effect in our own heads. But, you know, somebody is testifying in order to be heard. And often when it comes to human rights or collective social suffering, it's an effort to create evidence. It's an effort to share evidence or insight into rights abuses. So, you know, this is, I mean, there's, there's lots of issues that come out when you're dealing with this kind of methodology. Like, so for instance, 
you know, in the book, I talk about how there is a question of how reliable testimonies are. I mean, everyone forgets, you and I chatted about that just before the podcast, you know, how to, <laughs> what is the exact title of the book uh, we had to check and, you know, things like that. So the memory, memory forgets. I mean, we couldn't function if we had to remember everything. So, you know, I talk about that in the book. And then there's the other issue of you know, if it bleeds, it leads. So certain stories which are considered more horrendous or people are more likely to have those stories heard because they're so shocking and human beings just have a tendency to to be drawn sometimes to things that are shocking. And so the worry when you have this issue of memory, you have this issue of, you know, if it bleeds, it leads, so drama. And then sometimes the other issue is, of course, money. If people are being paid to share certain stories about what they've experienced, then all of those things throw it into this kind of unreliable frame. But what's interesting, and this is an important thing that I want to say about testimony, and unfortunately, when the book went to press, I hadn't encountered this particular text at the time. I wish I had, but I'll just mention it now. There's a great book um, called Epistemic Injustice, and it talks about how those people who are typically subordinate who are typically disenfranchised, that their witness, their testimonies are typically questioned. How reliable are they? They're denied the status of knowing. We're seeing them as not trustworthy or not competent to know about their experiences. And of course, who are these people? Often they're refugees, they're women, um, they're people who are perhaps less educated, have less access to institutional power. So for me, um, you know, I mean, I could go on so much. We could talk just simply about this issue of testimony and how to how to examine testimonies, what kind of methodological approach to take, how to kind of perform computational analysis on the type of words that are used in testimony and things like this. But for me, um, I view them with credibility. And then, of course, I can view them with credibility because I approach not only testimonies, but the whole interdisciplinary field of human rights, um, the study of famine, um, the study of refugeehood, um, the, you know, the whole study of human rights in general. So I think when you bring those different levels of expertise together, as they kind of complement and strengthen each other. So I guess that's what I would say about testimony as a dialectic. So can you set the stage um, for listeners, just in case they aren't familiar, by providing us with the pertinent historical background on North Korea? Well, so this is a tricky question because... <laughs> it's a big request. <laughs> I'm going to try to be succinct because the thing is, I feel my last question kind of wandered in its answer. But, you know, there's just so much to say on this. So let's see. I mean, we're the book is pinned to this subject of human rights. And the basic question, and I, I do talk about this in the introduction of the book, and I think the whole book kind of really... Uh, cracks open this question of why are human rights so different between North Korea and South Korea, right? How is it that you have a country which was once, or two countries which were once a single country, that today live such different lives, you know, and that I talk about in the book, like it's manifested, you can actually measure it in the bodies of people, the number of people who who die each year, what they die of, the height of people, the weight of babies, etc. You can measure it, you can measure the human rights. Uh, quantitatively. So why is it so different? And I think the best answer is that it goes back, I mean, North Korea is absolutely responsible for the types of human rights violations that happen in its country, as 
is South Korea for the violations that happened there. But the reason, I guess the historic reasons, you have um, the annexation of Korea in 1910 by the Japanese, which, you know, Western powers and pretty much most of the world just turned a blind eye to. And the Korean Peninsula under Japanese colonialism, Koreans didn't have rights. They weren't recognized as citizens. They were imperial subjects. Access to their own language was forbidden. They had to take Japanese names, had to learn Japanese language, of course. You know, whole Japanese institutions of uh, control so the government, uh, policing, etc., education, were controlled by the Japanese. When Japan was defeated in World War II and they surrendered, you know, they pulled out of Korea and there was this sort of political vacuum that was created. And you'll remember in 1945 at that time, the two biggest global powers, the United States and the Soviet Union, saw the peninsula of, of Korea as pretty important geopolitical turf. So um, they occupied, uh, the Soviet Union occupied the North and the Americans occupied the South. And this was an effort to try to, you know, install political, between each of those global powers, to install political stability in each of the parts of the country. And um, then the Korean War broke out. Um, We have you know, from 1950 to 1953, some people debate the fact that North Korea started the war, but the documentation is pretty clear that North Korea did invade the South. They fought up and down the peninsula, the United States backing in the South and in the North, the Soviets, and then ended up back at the 38th parallel again. So, I mean, you have all these traumas. You have the, the trauma of Japanese colonialism. You have the, the trauma of occupying forces with the Soviet Union in the North and the Americans in the South. You have the traumas of the Korean War, which, you know, there's possibly no life that was not touched by that. And then, you know, what happened is that each country, North and South, tried to further solidify their political power base. And they, in the South, it was an authoritarian regime as well as in the North, uh, though the North in many ways at first blush, appeared to be more liberal uh, or more successful in terms of its uh, economic uh, development uh, compared to South Korea. And then South Korea merged from its authoritarian rule in the 80s. South Koreans uh, demanded you know, basic uh, civil and political rights. And today you can't compare the two countries in terms of the types of differences that, it, that exist. I mean, it's really impossible to compare the two countries. And it's in some ways, I should say parenthetically, helpful that South Korea exists, because if all of the peninsula were like North Korea, I think most of the international community would probably write it off as a bit of a basket case. But because we know that South Korea operates the way it does, there's no question that that the people in the North could live the same way um, if they had the, the agency to make such demands on their government. So I mean, I hope that contextualizes things a bit. Of course, you know, you could look at the whole issue around geopolitical allies in the region, how South Korea was viewed, how North Korea was viewed, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, the reason I'm drawing in these issues of colonialism and then the division, Korean War, post-colonialism in both North and South Korea is because typically North Korea evokes this history as a justification for why human rights are as bad as they are in North Korea today, if they should use that language. I mean, primarily they say that, you know, the reason that economic and and social rights are as bad as they are is because of the sanctions that are put on them by the international community. This is kind of how North Korea phrases it. And that 
this has the historical roots to it. So, so that's basically how North Korea uh, will frame things and try to justify its current behavior with this historical kind of looking at these historical things as mitigating factors for their contemporary failures. So from news coverage that you see about North Korea, but also you mentioned that this comes up a lot in your book, famine and hunger are a main topic of the human rights abuses. Um, You see this in your research. um, And so I was hoping you could explain more about that situation. What's interesting about the food situation in North Korea is that it was, I argue in the book, you know, the famine of the 1990s that was really the inflection point for not so much the inflection point for worsening human rights violations, but rather the inflection point for our, us in the international community's awareness of how bad North Korea's human rights situation uh, really was and really is. Why? Well, because with the famine of the 1990s, people started leaving North Korea. Prior to that, there were very few people who left the country. So that's the first thing that I'll say about the famine and the food situation. And then the second thing is just from the field of famine studies, in general, which is um, something that I, I suppose a lot of people who are not in the field of um, food studies or famine studies really might not be aware of, is that you know famine is actually not about food. It's about some people not being able to access enough food, and with the with the additional observation that some people are not able to alter their access to enough food. So for instance, if you are not able to relocate within North Korea to a part of the country that has more access to food, well, of course, the country controlled people's movement and still does to this day. You know, you were given, there was a promissory relationship between the government and the people that a certain amount of food would be given every month uh, through the public distribution system, you know, because North Korea claims to be a you know socialist country where they're going to provide for the people. But uh, when you would go to the depot to collect the food, uh, you would be told to come back in a few weeks' time or there's less to give this, this month or whatever the case is. But you couldn't relocate to a different part of the country to get uh, more food or to, uh, and also you couldn't then, I mean, legally, you couldn't begin to manufacture or sell items to get money to buy food, you know. So there are these kind of catch-22s that are in place. And because North Korea, I mean, look, nowadays there's a bit of a different situation in terms of the black markets, which emerged around the time of the famine. And many in the human rights activist community talk about the Amshijang, or these, these, the generation of people who grew up uh, in the markets. And so the markets were kind of born during the time of the famine, and they really altered North Korean society quite a bit, because suddenly people had access to food and money and resources that was separate from the state. They weren't as dependent on the state. But North Korea continues to be food insecure. Like, for instance, North Korea is very mountainous, so it's very difficult. Uh, farming is very difficult. But as, you know, there were issues with the flooding, there were issues with the drought that make uh, the production of food quite difficult. But unlike other countries which can purchase that food or choose to purchase that food internationally, North Korea didn't do that. So North Korean government made a lot of decisions that were about prioritizing certain things over others. And look, lots of governments do that. But there are many parts of the world that if the government did not prioritize the purchase of food, there would be famine. The North Korean government made a decision to prioritize the military and spending on the military over uh, the purchase of, of grains that people could use 
further North Korean government controls who has who can get access to those aids that are coming in, so those grains that are coming in. So uh, it continues to be an issue in North Korea. There is loads of evidence that shows that there is a huge stunting in the population of North Korea, especially compared to South Koreans. And historically, North Koreans would have been the taller of the two when you consider the two sides of the peninsula. Um, but due to lack of food, people's bodies are sacrificing that linear growth for to just to survive. And of course, this has, I mean, look, this has a huge impact on people's or infants or in utero mental development. Uh, there's all kinds of studies that show that there's knock-on effect in terms of cancer rates, um, schizophrenia, all kinds of troubles that can happen to an individual as a result of suffering from, from malnutrition that, that can't really be remedied in later life, even with access to good healthcare and good food. So yeah, I mean, it's definitely, it falls on the shoulders of the North Korean government for not prioritizing uh, the basic needs of people over military spending. Another issue that comes up is information control. And so one of the issues you bring up regarding information control is defectors being paid for their stories, or even being able to gain access to those defectors or even into North Korea at all regarding like researching or even the UN. So can you tell us more about information control? Right. Gosh, there's so much to say about this as well. I mean, I suppose this is why people write books. So you can say, well, look, there are these things, but there's so much more detail. So you really have to read the book. And I, and I hope people will read the book because there's just so much more to be said. When I was writing the book, I applied to, to enter North Korea with a group of uh, Korean American medical doctors to do research on disability in North Korea. And I was denied a visa. Um, I have an Irish passport, so there's no reason why on the simple basis of documents that I would be denied access. But that's one example of how it's very difficult to get access on the ground and to get information. Within North Korea, uh, look, I don't know if your listeners know, it's, there's no, I mean, there is an intranet, which, I mean, I don't know if anyone's ever heard of an intranet, but basically it's just not not an internet at all. Access to foreign media is extremely difficult. North Korea is, I think, one of the lowest ranked nations in terms of journalistic freedom, freedom of information. Um, it really is unparalleled in the contemporary world. You know, even, I mean, people are talking now that some people in Pyongyang have access to mobile phones, et cetera, et cetera. But just as people are getting access to some information, you know, being able to have a mobile phone, for instance, and being able to use intranet, just like the, the Chinese government, North Korea government is using technology to crack down on people as well and to find out what do people know. So, for instance, they've, you know, even though there's illegal information coming in uh, on USBs, micro SD cards, DVDs, et cetera. North Korean hardware has a kind of almost like a type of malware on it that can stamp, um, kind of put an invisible watermark, if you will, on the thing. And then if you copy it and share it with another the document can then be traced back to whoever copied it. So it will kind of reintroduce each time a level of tracking. So that's that's all written about in the book. Um, you know, when I did interviews for my first book, I asked North Koreans, you know, so look, you were hungry all the time, didn't you? Com like, how did you complain? How did you talk to people? How did you understand what was going on? Because it's not as if North Korea advertised that there was a famine and said, look, we've, you know, we have a famine. You know, how did they talk about it? Things like this. There's all kinds of coded language that's used in North Korea, some of it quite humorous. So there's those kind of clandestine registers that people use to um, communicate, you know, what their interests might be, while at the same time not risking too much danger in their communication. 
you know, this issue of testimony and information kind of loop back on each other because, you know, one of the primary ways that we have information about North Korea is through the, you know, 30,000 or so uh, North Korean defectors who are in South Korea and uh, the larger possibly number of North Koreans who are settled in China secretly and in other countries. Now we are seeing a few uh, hundred, I believe, in the United States. There's a couple in Canada. I believe there's a couple thousand in the UK. All this has just happened over the last couple decades. This is primarily how we have information about North Korea. The other way is through satellite imagery, um, through analyzing North Korea's own uh, propaganda rhetoric, or let's just say North Korea's own media, North Koreans, uh, representatives at the UN, um, reading North Korean literature, um, listening to North Korean radio. I mean, this is how we have information about that country. The, the important thing to say, and I mentioned this before about like, uh, you know, believing that some people don't know things, this idea of epistemic injustice, that some people don't have knowledge. You know, North Korea likes to discredit anyone who leaves the country as not having any knowledge about the country. Um, and and some people outside of North Korea will say, well, you can't trust everything that a North Korean defector will tell you. And of course, well, yes, of, of course, but there's many ways of, of parsing information. North Korea claimed, I mean, it is a lie. North Korea claimed that the United Nations and the United States paid North Korean defectors to tell stories and nobody was paid at the United Nations who gave testimony. Um, and, and these are public testimonies, many of them, some were private, obviously, not on record, but publicly available. Anyone can listen to them, and they are harrowing. So I would challenge anyone to listen to them and, and to think that this person was, was paid, whatever it was, $50. I mean, nobody was paid at the UN, um, and the United States never paid any of these individuals. The notion that defectors are being paid to tell these harrowing stories is, I think, uh, you know, it's, tip, it's the typical kind of uh, attempt to disenfranchise and throw into question the, the very truthful claims that the collective are making toward uh, the North Korean state. Yeah, I just want to say one final thing about the information point, if I can. You know, there's a very interesting study, um, and I mention it in the book as well. Nat Kretchen and Jane Kim wrote, uh, conducted a study called A Quiet Opening, and they make an incredible claim in that. The study showed that North Koreans' perspective on the international community, you know, South Korea, Japan, China, America, North Korean domestic views of those countries are starting to change as a result of watching foreign media um, from those countries. So this is really intriguing. But the other conclusion that they make in that report, and it is a very disturbing one, is that North Koreans' views of their own country have not changed. And so this is a very compelling insight because North Korea, unlike other countries, for instance, uh, Soviet Union, had a samizdat. It had a, a kind of people's media that was separate from the state. And it's interesting to me, and I don't remember if you remember reading the, this in the book, um, I've sort of hidden a particular policy recommendation in the book, which is that, you know, North Koreans, we really need to help North Koreans to create their own samizdat. That's the missing ingredient in North Korea. You know, they, North Koreans have not seen media that is made by North Koreans and for North Koreans ever. Um, they've only ever seen state media and, uh, you know, nothing about us without us, but they've had everything <laughs> about us 
without us, you know, for, for um, far too long. So um, that's something that, that can be facilitated. There's a way to do it. Information is leaking out from North Korea, not only through defectors, but through guerrilla journalists um, that are working with a group called Rim Jin Gang, um, which is kind of a river that flows from north to south. And they're um, collecting information inside North Korea, what do ordinary people think of the assassination, for instance, of Kim Jong-nam in Kuala Lumpur Airport? What do they know about this? Did they know who he was? Did they know who assassinated him? This kind of thing. Uh, people in the black markets are chatting about this kind of stuff clandestinely. Um, if your listeners don't know, Kim Jong-nam was the half-brother of Kim Jong-un, who was assassinated in Kuala Lumpur Airport. There's a question about whether the North Koreans did it, but I think uh, it's yeah, there's, there's a lot of evidence that they did. Uh, anyway, so that information is being leaked out. And what would be interesting for North Koreans inside North Korea is for them to see each other, for them to really genuinely see themselves represented in media, not the state mediatized representation that is highly censured. So movement or even a lack of movement are big issues in what you discover in your research. For instance, you find a lack of mobility, but also which I didn't know, um, North Korea sends workers overseas to gain foreign currency. So can you tell us more about those issues? Right. It's really interesting. Many people wouldn't expect because, you know, if you don't know much, which, you know, like there's a lot of information out there, it's hard to know things these days. But, you know, most people will probably think of North Korea as one big prison, which, you know, of course, I would challenge that view. It's far more complex than that. But North Korea does send workers overseas. And it's done this from, you know, earliest history. Uh, in the 60s and 70s, it was, you know, people who were not really of value to the government people who are dispensable would be sent overseas to Russia and China to work. A lot of logging in China, a lot of men. And so it wasn't, you know, a job that people would want. Nowadays, there's been a big shift and North Korea uses the labor of its people as a way to make money. And so if you look at a map, um, if you were just to do a quick Google search of North Korean overseas labor, if you look at the map of who's actually going overseas and where they're going, I mean, it's a very strongly delineated geopolitical map. You know, they're not going to America. <laughs> they're not going to Canada. Uh, they're not going to Western Europe. They're going to Poland. Uh, they're going to Russia. They're going to China. They're in Asia. They're in parts of the world that are clearly delineated along geopolitical lines in the Middle East parts of Africa. Yeah. And, and that work nowadays, it's really interesting. There's an incentive within North Korea for people to try to get that type of work. Why? Well, because they will get certain privileges. It's not the desire so much to work internationally, because as I say in the book, North Korea exports its own style of human rights violations with these workers as they go overseas. So they don't have access to media. They don't have access to foreign media. They don't have access to uh, mobile phones. They're not able to freely go where they want. I mean, they're very much on a compound. There's very much the expectation that the workers work collectively and are observing and informing on each other. Um, they have to do regular self-criticism sessions, just as they have to do back in North Korea, which is, you know, you evaluate how much was I loyal to the, the 10 principles uh, within North Korea today? What could I have done better? This type of confessional. And the pay that these workers earn, of course, is all controlled. And the vast majority of it, I'd say probably 90% of it, is sent back to North Korea. 
The other thing that's interesting about these overseas workers is that North Korea will ensure that there is an anchor back in North Korea. The North Korean high-ranking defector Taeyong Ho calls this love abuse. North Korea will ensure that you have family members that are back home within the country so that if you do leave or do something that is questionable, yeah, those members of your family can be uh, used to ensure that you don't engage in that kind of behavior or just they will be punished on your behalf because North Korea practices something called Yong Chaje, which is a basically um, a system of crime inheritance. So Taeyong Ho, who I mentioned a moment ago, gave this term love abuse. He defected from the London embassy. His was an exceptional case because he managed to have his wife and two of his his two grown sons with him. But I'm sure that any family members of his that are back in North Korea have either been sent to prison camps or that they are being used for propaganda purposes. And I think it's sadly more likely the former. So that sort of thing is, is going on in terms of movement. And then within North Korea itself, movement is not so easy. Uh, you know, you need, you can bribe people within the country to get from one part to the other, if you're lucky, if you have enough to be, to, to bribe them with. But also, you know, people call it Pyongyang. So there's a Pyongyang is, is really kind of a city state onto itself. It is privileged locus of power in the country. You need a special card to, to get in there. Certain people would never be permitted entry there because of being from a bad Songbun, a kind of lower political, unimagined lower political class. Songbun is something that is, you know, this notion that you have inherited genetically the politics of your ancestors. So again, you hear this idea of the young Chaje, this idea that you inherit the crimes of others. So anyone with low Songbun would not be in Pyongyang. Anyone of low political ingredient wouldn't be in Pyongyang. It would be relegated to the northern areas where it's very difficult to get access to resources, food, health, healthcare, you know, education, good jobs, things like this. So controlling the movement of people is a way of controlling information, controlling what they understand about other parts of the country. So for instance, people in Chongjin, which is a northern eastern part of North Korea, will have very little idea of how privileged and incredible things actually are for, for the elite in Pyongyang and vice versa in inverse, of course, proportion. So can you tell us more about the UN report that comes up a few times in your book and North Korea's response to it? The United Nations report, you know, it's, uh, I think it's an incredible piece of research. It's incredibly well written. It's incredibly comprehensive. The United Nations Commission of Inquiry report acknowledges the historical context of the situation on the Korean Peninsula and in North Korea. So I would absolutely encourage readers who are interested in this subject to go online and find it. It's you know it's a very lengthy report. It's nearly 400 pages long, and uh, it's a very sensitive, uh, incredibly well-researched, a condemning report. I mean, absolutely. The question was, you know, are the allegations true? You know, so the allegations were what? You know, is, is North Korea committing crimes against humanity? That was basically the question. And, you know, if you're going to define crimes against humanity, we say basically it's, you know, something which is systematic, part of a widespread campaign, and that there's knowledge of it um, by the government, and that, um, you know, a significant swath of the population is affected by it. North Korea has an extensive network of political prison camps, considerable network of re-education camps, a huge problem with 
forced abortion of women who end up, if they are trafficked or cross the border into China and get repatriated. This is another issue with regards to to migration or movement, relocation that I could have talked about previous in the previous question. Um, torture, you know, I mean, abortion, forced abortion is a form of torture. Force to have a baby would be a form of torture as well. Uh, how it's defined in the United Nations. And so, you know, the evidence is compelling and condemning. And anyone who would argue otherwise simply hasn't hasn't read the material, hasn't listened uh, to the testimonies. So that's the United Nations report. And so the concerns with regards to North Korea's, North Korea's human rights were put permanently on the United Nations Security Council agenda. So always um, North Korea's human rights would be discussed. And uh, huge rounds of sanctions followed. Um, and uh, some people argue that the sanctions are targeting the most vulnerable in North Korean society or the sanctions are negatively impacting um, the most vulnerable in North Korean society. But if you read those reports carefully, the evidence actually is not there. Um, those are reports that are based on much earlier insights. So um, it's not very well founded, actually. And, and separately, the North Korean government could uh, prioritize certain resources for the welfare of its people. For instance, uh, we'll probably see over Christmas or the new year, North Korea launch another missile. I mean, this is an enormous expense at enormous expense and at the expense of sanctions. And then the claim is that, well, these sanctions are impacting on ordinary North Koreans' uh, lives. So this is an argument that North Korea puts forward in their own news. And, you know, your listeners can go on the internet right now. And, well, I think KCNA is not available in America. Uri Minjokiri, Our People Together, that's a website that's accessible in America. But anyway, you can find North Korean news. You can look it on YouTube, whatever. And you can read what North Korea is saying. And one of the things they say is that, well, so now I'm switching to talk about how North Korea has responded, North Korea's own, because the United Nations wrote this Commission of Inquiry report. It took an entire year. They interviewed more than 200 experts and defectors, some privately, some on the record. And, you know, the report itself is, it's, it's enormous. It's almost 400 pages long. Now, North Korea's human rights report was whipped up very quickly um, and sent to the United Nations. That's also available if someone wanted to, to find it. It's been submitted to the United Nations. It's about uh, 96 pages long. Um, it doesn't uh, deal with any human rights issues inside North Korea. It doesn't address any of the claims made by the UN COI report. Instead, it does the typical thing that North Korea does, which is the following. You know, they obfuscate. They change the subject. North Korea is very skillful at doing this. Um, I think they've just stolen the trick from the Soviet uh, toolbox, and they they just use a lot of whataboutism. So they say, well, you say we have prison camps in North Korea, but what about the system of racist incarceration in the United States, which anybody who's read The New Jim Crow knows from that book that there is a system uh, in the United States, racist incarceration in the United States? Well, absolutely, yes. But when North Korea brings up the whataboutism argument, it's actually changing the subject. And uh, it would never work in a court of law. It would never work uh, in a Harvard or Oxford debate society. Like, it's it's illogical. It's incoherent. Um, they're just changing the subject. And to people who are not, uh, I suppose, 
I don't want to sound pejorative, but, but people who are not sophisticated in terms of understanding argument, it could be seductive. Well, yes. I mean, America does have that problem. Well, okay. So, but then it's a race to the bottom. So you've changed the subject and you have a race to the bottom. But the other thing is this, uh, and this goes back to the information thing. You know, if you only read North Korea's news, right, which is what the vast majority of people inside North Korea have, and if you just read that, you would think that the United Nations report, Commission of Inquiry report, was maybe a few pages long. Like you would have no idea that it was nearly 400 pages. You would think that they only interviewed people who were race, uh, who were, excuse me, who were um, defectors, who were rapists, pedophiles, uh, murderers. I mean, because that's how they discuss the people who gave testimony at the UN. I'm not speaking in hyperbole here. That is how they're referred to as quote unquote human scum. And you'd think that all these people, these murderers, these rapists, these pedophiles are being paid by the by the United Nations, by the United States to tell these lies. Um, so that's the image that North Korea puts forward, uh, which is like a character assassination to those defectors as well. It's like keeping salt on the wound of the abuses that, that already happened. Um, but the other intriguing thing to me that North Korea has done, and I talk about this a lot in the second part of the book, because, I mean, you could see I really got into it. I mean, North Korea's denial campaign about its human rights abuses is considerable. If they put even half the effort into improving rights, they put into denying them, <laughs> you know, um, they probably save a lot more lives, uh, but they're not interested. I, I mean, I, it's unfortunate that I have to say this, but they're not interested in improving people's lives. They're interested in regime stability. North Korea has begun this sort of video campaign where it makes documentaries that are for domestic and international consumption, because they're on YouTube, you can easily watch them, that slander defectors or anybody who speaks openly and outright about the violations that happen inside North Korea. And in these documentaries, they parade out family members or alleged family members, or neighbors, or co-workers who denounce that defector. So this type of thing happens. And then, of course, North Korea has, you know, more performative aspects, like it had an anti-human rights, anti-United Nations human rights report demonstration in Pyongyang when the human rights report came out. So these weren't people in the street saying that they don't want human rights. What they were saying is that the human rights report is a lie, and that it's a a new slogan for war, which is basically how North Korea phrases it, that the United Nations Human Rights Report is an effort to destroy the nation of North Korea through this kind of naming and shaming campaign and through these sanctions. It's a psychological weapon to destroy uh, North Korea. So it's fascinating to see how they engage this at the level of rhetoric, you know, and they just try to combat the United Nations Human Rights Report with just more talk, more rhetoric. They don't permit access. So, for instance, if they are saying that sanctions are making it difficult for ordinary North Korean mothers to feed their children, um, they need to allow the uh, neutral observers with the UN uh, to go and observe and see this, see this for themselves if that's the case, unadulterated areas uh, throughout the country. If prison camps are not a problem, if their re-education camps are in fact not a problem, then they need to provide access to people on the ground, neutral observers. They don't have to be from America. They don't have to be from Europe, but they don't permit this access. North, North Korea was invited to participate with the United Nations for this Commission of Inquiry report. They were invited several times. Let Work with us. Here are these allegations about you. Work with us. Let's see if these allegations are true. If they're not true, 
we will let it be known. Do you know, Sarah, how North Korea responded? They ignored the request. They ignored them. So I would just say one other thing about North Korea's response with the videos, right? They're doing this thing, which um, I'm kind of writing about this in, the, in a new book that I'm right, working on now, which is how, well, what I'm calling, I, I do think North Korea is a total as a totalitarian state and, you know, China as well and, and Russia, I would argue. And, you know, we're seeing more and more now these states invite, for instance, we see North Korea has invited Will Ripley from CNN International. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it. He's been invited to Pyongyang many times to report. And I'm not saying for good or for bad this is happening. I kind of think it's quite fascinating, actually, and he should be given as much access as he can get. But North Korea started doing this after the human rights report. And Will Ripley has been invited to sit down with, for example, people who are former overseas workers. Why? Why did North Korea do this? Because a human rights report came out of the Leiden Asia Research Institute, uh, Remco Bruker and others, uh, did research on North Korea's overseas labor camps and found uh, huge issues with uh, exploitation of overseas workers. And that wasn't in the United Nations Commission of Inquiry report because it came out uh, 2015, 2016, 2018, these reports came out. Well, of course, North Korea follows along with its own media rhetoric of denial. CNN, Will Ripley is invited. Here, we will provide an, an translator for you, Will. Here, you can interview these overseas workers, and they are going to tell you themselves that everything was fine. And you can see the rhetoric of the North Korean state is traced precisely in the sentences that they speak. Same thing for the 12 women who defected from a Chinese, uh, excuse me, a, a Korean restaurant in China. North Korea accused South Korea of abducting these women. Will Ripley was invited to interview the family members of these alleged abducted women. Well, really, these women had defected, um, but North Korea used invited Will Ripley. And what's fascinating is to see that then this footage is picked up on CNN and BBC and other very reputable outlets. Many people would look at North Korea's news and think, well, yeah, it's, uh, it's not very compelling. It's not very convincing. But if North Korea is able to float its propaganda message on CNN and BBC, etc., just like Russia does with uh, Russia Today, for instance, um, then it can confuse people. It can uh, have people questioning, oh, well, is this, is this really the case? What is the truth as we're in this kind of post-truth era? So you end your book on a hopeful note. What do you want readers and listeners today to take away from your book? I uh, talk in the book, you know, throughout it, I think at the beginning, especially about how depressing this type of work is. And a lot of people, when they hear about my research, they often say to me, my God, how do you sleep at night? Or what do you do for fun? I mean, how do you? So I, I suppose this is what I'd like readers to take away. That we, you know, we use this term crimes against humanity because it's a concern for all of us. Some people say to me, you know, you're not Korean. How is it that you're interested in this subject? And I mean, my interest were originally with famine, famine survivor testimony, human rights in general. But the things that are happening to, to North Koreans are happening to all of us. I mean, this is, they are part of the human community. To say that, you know, this is just a problem for North Korea is to say that North Koreans are not part of the human community. So that's the first thing I'd like readers to, to come away with, that, you know, that we have, we have a duty of care to our fellow, to our fellows who are experiencing this um, while we live free. Um, and so if people are interested, um, there's a few organizations that I could mention. And at the end of the book, 
I do end on a positive note, which is I'm basically saying, um, talking about some active, uh, activist activities, which I, I continue to be involved with uh, human rights activism for North Korea. And this is about sending you know, rice bottles and USBs and uh, medicine and things like that into North Korea. Because, you know, when you work through the official channels, you know, you get controlled. I mean, North Korea is going to try to control everything that goes in. So if readers are interested, there's a few groups that they could get involved with. Um, and wherever you are, if there's a Korean community, be that a North or South Korean community where you are, um, you know, get in touch with them. Because often, particularly if they're South Korean, whether churches or political groups or whatever, they are likely to be involved with um, humanitarian work in some capacity for for North Korea. Um, there's a group called Liberty in North Korea. Um, reader or listeners can Google that. And uh, yeah, there's a there's a great group called Tongil Mom, T-O-N-G-I-L-M-O-M. Um, they're a group of North Korean women who are interested in improving women's rights in North Korea and particularly the rights of children, um, stateless children in China. And yeah, I guess I would just encourage listeners to read as much as you can, uh, read with skepticism, of course, and always read the footnotes. <laughs> and, um, you know, there's a, there's a great group in, in uh, D.C., uh, Human Rights HRNK, uh, who produces excellent uh, research reports. Yeah, I hope uh, listeners will get involved and, uh, and read the book. And the book makes other recommendations uh, for things as well. You know, I would just say one more final thing, if I can, before we go, which is just to kind of really send the message home here in case there's any, because there are groups, uh, there are North Korean sympathizer groups out there who tout the same kind of rhetoric that North Korea does about the whataboutism. You know, the reason North Korea's human rights situation is as bad as it is because of the United States or so on and so forth. And I mean, the basic thing is this, you know, it, it actually wouldn't cost the North Korean government anything to improve human rights in North Korea. In fact, they would probably save money, you know, because, for instance, public execution costs the North Korean government uh, money. They have to dispatch the soldiers, the uh, the executioners, and they have to uh, spend bullets on these people. North Korea has to exert a considerable amount of effort into making sure that people don't cross into to China and to mistreating or torturing defectors when they get them back. You know, North Korean government puts in a considerable effort to control flows of information. I mean, they could just stop doing those things. They could just, as like people say in medicine, do no harm. They could just choose to not inflict the human rights violations. I mean, we're not asking for big things. We're not asking for every North Korean to have be earning the capacity of South Koreans, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, but North Korea won't do that. And why won't they do that? And the answer is revealing. They won't do that because it would mean the end, the regime as it currently operates. In other words, um, human rights violations are at the core of sustaining the North Korean regime. So I'll leave it there. And it was a very sad note, not a happy note. I think you left us with um, some actionable items, which I really appreciated. But today I've been talking with Sandra Fahi about her new book, Dying for Rights, Putting North Korea's Human Rights Abuses on the Record. So what are you working on now, Sandra? Oh, well, as I mentioned, I'm working on a new book. I don't quite have the title yet, but I'm basically looking at how states use video 
to deny allegations of human rights abuses. So I'm looking at the Khashoggi killing. I'm looking at the Scripple attempted assassination. I'm looking at the Kim Jong-nam assassination. I'm looking at North uh, China's forced confession videos, North Korea's fake documentaries. So basically just how state perpetrators use video to deny allegations leveled toward them of human rights violations. They try to deny that through video. So stay tuned for that. (laughs) Thank you. Sounds really interesting. Thanks again for being with us today. Thank you, Sarah. My pleasure. 